welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. My guest today is Charles Fain Lehman. Charles is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. His work covers crime, policing, and other social issues from a data-driven perspective. Charles, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me on. You recently wrote a piece for your Substack, and the piece is called How I Changed My Mind About Marijuana. And I thought it was a really great piece. It's got lots of data. It's making interesting arguments empirically, but also morally, I think. And I wanted to have you on to talk about it because I think for a very long time, and maybe still so, but the the anti-legalization position on marijuana has basically been seen as a moralistic position. It's something that is, marijuana is something that is bad. We don't want people doing it. We don't want it corrupting our youth. That's sort of what's leading the argument. As marijuana has become more and more legalized, you know, in different states in the US, I'm in Canada, where it's, it's legal everywhere. I think more people, even, even maybe people who are marijuana consumers are starting to kind of look around and say, okay, this is not going quite as planned. There seem to be some drawbacks that are hard to deny, even if overall, the policy does seem to have some upsides as well. So I want to kind of first start by getting your take on how has the debate changed over time in terms of the kinds of arguments that people have used? And do you see any sort of new or different arguments on the anti-legalization side now that legalization has actually, you know, happened to a significant degree? Gosh, there's a lot there. No, I mean, you know, so what's 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 really interesting to me, I work on drug policy, um, and this touches on marijuana, although in some senses, my work on drug policy comes after the marijuana fight is over. But what's what's interesting to me is that every time I talk about drugs, I talk about marijuana with sort of people casually, uh, what they invariably say to me is, you know, I'm in favor of marijuana station. I favored, I, I voted for that. But you know, it really just smells like pot everywhere on the streets now. I'm in DC. I'm in New York. It smells like pot everywhere on the streets now, and and it's really starting to change my mind. And, and my response to that invariably is, really, that's 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 what did it. Like, and but 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 this says something to me about the way in which, for a long time, the marijuana debate has not been about marijuana per se, right? The substance of the pro legalization side's argument overwhelmingly is not. Okay, let me rephrase. Sometimes it is marijuana is good, but this is not, I think, what they front load. We talk about the marijuana is good argument. What they front load is this contention that marijuana criminalization, marijuana prohibition, does huge, dramatic harm as a major driver of mass incarceration and arrest in the United States. And the harms of that substantially outweigh any benefits of prohibition. My position is that their case is just sort of baseless, um, for lack of a better term. But I think it's also significant that the conversation was always predominantly had in the terms of, is prohibition good or bad versus do we want marijuana, the substance to be a thing freely available and sold on the open market in our society? Do we want people to be able to buy marijuana over the counter? Do we want large firms to be able to sell marijuana to people, uh, which is, you know, I think the the, the threat of green is what's on the horizon. Um, do we want to market an addictive good? And and you know, people did not think about the marijuana debate in those terms. And so now that we've sort of begun the great legalization experiment again, we've returned to legalization from you know we, we had legalization one period of time in the nineteenth century or the twentieth century. Um, now that we've returned to legalization, we're sort of going, hang on a second. There are actually specific concerns about certain problems with this substance being freely available that we weren't really thinking about when we when we voted for legalization. Well, I mean, thinking about it myself, I feel like there are at least three major problems 
I can see with legalized marijuana. And the first is that you've got smoking and selling in public. I mean, if you go to, to New York City, you know, you walk through Times Square, there's tons of people just selling it openly and that kind of thing. Whether or not uh, you think it should be legal or not, I think there's there's a strong argument that, okay, we shouldn't just be able to sell this anywhere. That seems wrong. The next one is kids smoking it and teenagers as well, which, I mean, was a problem when it was illegal as well, for sure. But I think now it's, I mean, probably much, much easier for, you know, an older brother or something doesn't even have to have a drug dealer or something. You just go to a, you know, a store and get it uh, for his younger sibling. And then the, the third one that I think is, is actually perhaps the, the most tragic is you have sort of chronic users. Now, chronic users are, I don't, is, is there a definition of chronic users, actually, like a, a specific one? Yes. I don't remember the frequency. You talk to people with marijuana use disorder, um, and sort of abstractly, you can say a use disorder is when you use it, and you use it in spite of a desire to stop, in spite of harmful effects, um, you use it compulsively in other terms. Uh, use disorder is the politically correct term for addiction. And then basically, you identify that with an inventory of behaviors. How often do you use and do you think these side effects are occurring because of your use? Right. What is estimated to be of people who use marijuana? What percent do you know are estimated to be chronic users? It's like five to 10 or something. Yeah, it's so so usually it's between you're, you can pick an answer between five and 15 percent. Ten percent is sort of a good rule of thumb just in general for addiction. Um, I do some numbers in the piece that you're alluding to about 14 million people with marijuana use disorder versus 50 million people who use marijuana on a regular basis. So you can call that, uh, gosh, what is that? That's as high as 28%. I think that's probably a little bit high if you round it down. But 10% is perfectly plausible. I think it's been accepted. Uh, if you go, if you talk to a physician, some addiction medicine, they'll tell you that's a reasonable number. So for the chronic use population, for a long time, we've had stoners, we've had people who are, you know, who are chronic users. I think what feels different now, though, is it feels like because it's legal, it is much harder to make a moral case against those people. If they are your family or your friends, it is much harder to say to them, hey, you really need to stop doing this. You know, it's causing all kinds of problems because they just say, well, it's like I'm just going to the store. I'm, you know, totally legal. I also imagine if I was an addict or if I was addicted to marijuana, and I was walking down the street here in Toronto, it'd be very enticing because there's literally a, a, a pot shop like on every other corner. And I imagine that also makes it worse for people who want to quit and are trying to quit, but uh, are still going to be, you know, uh, enticed uh, now and again. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 rule of thumb for an addictive good is that 10 to 20% of the users will be responsible for 80 to 90% of the actual consumption that those people will drive the market. The goal of prohibition is not in reality to get rid of a substance. It's to dramatically decrease the availability and thereby increase the price of, in terms of time and money, of acquiring that substance. That reduces use on the intensive margin. You have to spend more dollars and spend more time trying to acquire your drugs. It also reduces use on the extensive margin. Fewer people are likely to initiate use because it is less available, it's more socially sanctioned, etc. One of the utilizations of weed is that it's, it's a weed. It's like really easy to grow efficiently. It's just not that hard, um, particularly if you big legal grow ops. The actual cost should be driven to zero uh, or really close to zero, um, in which case regulation determines essentially all of the cost. Provision previously determined essentially all of the cost. And so, so yeah, I think exactly what you see is, you know, it's not even necessarily useful to say some people are by nature addicts and some people are by nature not. There's probably genetic determinants. There are probably social determinants. Some of it's going to be the substance that you're using. People have higher or lower risks. It's, it's probabilistic is a better way to think about it. But the reality is that 
some people, the people who will drive the market, their use will be particularly compulsive and therefore particularly harmful. And by the way, they'll be the targets. It's not just that availability will increase the risk of the frequency of their use and the risk of their initiation of use. It's that in an efficient capitalist market, those are going to be the people who you're trying to sell to because those are the lion's share of your consumers. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it, it is that legalization makes it harder for me to say to you, in much the same way it's true of tobacco, in much the same way it's true of alcohol, those being legal substances make it harder for me to say to people, you have a problem with the substance, you should stop using it. But it's also the case that legalization introduces far more competent actors into the sell side of the market who are able to say, who are the people who are going to drive our profits? And those people are also the people use is likely the most harmful. Right. I was having dinner a while ago with a family member who is an epidemiologist and he studies sort of drug markets and legalization. At the time, I was a very, very strong libertarian. And I basically said to him, well, like, why don't we just make it, you know, as legal as selling anything else? You've got all these people on a black market who, you know, are trying to sell their thing. They've got all these barriers in the way. Why don't we just make it so that anybody can sell it? Now, won't it basically be the same thing, but you cut out all the crime, you cut out all the, the problems with uh, substances, like like weed being laced with other substances, right? And, and all the stuff, which is, a, of course, also an issue when it's illegal. And his response was basically like, yeah, but then the people who are good at selling it are going to take over. And then they're going to be putting, you know, marketers, advertisers behind this. And you are going to see whatever small problems you you had with the substance are going to become very, very big problems very quickly. And I think that's some that's an argument that I think is interesting for for libertarian minded people to think about because they are not necessarily thinking about what is what would happen to this with full advertisements, right? Full capability and uh you know full sort of business acumen behind it right you know what what i like to say is imagine what would happen if amazon could sell heroin um they would be really really good at selling heroin they would be incredible at selling they would move so much heroin um and that would be bad and in fact we know this um we saw large pharmaceutical concerns get into the business of the heavily regulated business of selling opioids. And they addicted and killed lots and lots. This is the start of the genesis of the American opioid crisis. Um, they moved large quantities of product. Uh, and now they're all getting hosed in court because of the harm that they did. Um, so we know, we know what happens there. And, you know, I think David Courtright, who's a historian of drug policy and drugs in America, wrote a recent book a couple of years ago called The Age of Addiction, um, which talks about the idea of limbic capitalism, which is like basically the rise of markets and addictive substances. And there are lots of licit, legal addictive substances. Um, so you talk about tobacco and alcohol, but you can also talk about social media, pornography, gambling increasingly, classes of goods where to use to use the Gary Becker model, classes of goods where uh, the more you consume, the more utility you derive from consuming it sort of merit special attention in how we think about whether how we regulate them, whether or not we should permit them. And the question for addiction goods is always basically like, can we create a regulatory regime that will minimize the harms and risks inherent in this versus should we just prohibit it outright? Is it more efficient and is it better for everyone involved for us to just prohibit it outright? I think there's a strong argument that you can regulate away a lot of the harms of, I don't know, tobacco or social media. You can you can handle, you can sort of internalize a lot of the costs of social media in a way that means you probably shouldn't just ban social media. But that's less obviously true of heroin. I think that's, it's, it's, it's much easier to sort of look at heroin and go, eh, more efficient system is a long way we just prohibit it. What would you say to somebody who took a more sort of 
hyper-capitalist, social Darwinist kind of approach. And they said, look, there are just, there are just some people who are, they're going to be weak-willed, you know, heroin will be sold by Amazon and they will buy it. But why shouldn't Amazon make a profit, right? I mean, the the good majority of people, let's say let's say it's sixty percent of people are never going to touch the stuff. Maybe there's a, a bottom forty percent who will. At the end of the day, I mean, it's not up to government to say, you know, who should have access to which and which substance to put, you know, what and what in their body. It's very easy to make the argument with marijuana. It's harder to make the argument with heroin. But I think some would still say that they would say, look. If we as a society are going to get used to having heroin, the first thing that has to happen is you have to have a generation or something of, of heroin addicts who, you know, go through, they don't reproduce, they die, and so on and so forth. And I mean, it, what would you say to somebody who took that kind of hyper-capitalist position? Does your boss listen to the podcast? <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Well, hi, hi, Richard, if you're listening, we're asking hypotheticals about you. Um, <laughs> right. So look, I mean, if you're committed to the idea that as, as some people have committed to the idea that like the weak will dying is good, I can't really help you. Um, like if that is if that is your view that like you know the guy who dies in the gutter deserves everything he got gets, okay, um, that's a bad view. I don't agree on a moral level, but I it's if if you're principally committed to it, I cannot dissuade you. But I think most people are not principally committed to it, and I think this for a couple of reasons. One is that to return to your point about the experience of heroin, we did that in this country, right? Uh, There is a 40, 50 year period between the synthesis and widespread availability of heroin uh, on the the pharmaceutical market and the prohibition of heroin at the national and international level. The first drug crisis in American history is people getting hooked on morphine during the Civil War and then coming home uh, because the advent of morphine, the hypodermic needle. Um, Like we tried that experiment uh, we tried it at like small 19th century industrial capitalism scale, uh, and we hated it. We banned the drugs outright. We were like, this is terrible. There's a huge national fight about alcohol prohibition. There's like, you know, huge climate political energy expended. There's like no debate about drug prohibition otherwise. Everyone's just like, yeah, we should we should ban this. That seems uh, that that was a mistake. But you know, look, I I I think it is very hard to if you are willing to bite every bullet and say, yes, it's fine for the heroin addict to die in the street. My response is that's crazy, but I think most people are not willing to bite a bullet. They're willing to say uh, there is a degree of human suffering wrought by substances that my enjoyment is not worth. Um, Heroin's – I haven't done any heroin, but I've been told it's fun. Um, Drugs are fun. Like people enjoy drugs. That's nice. Um, There is some aggregate benefit. As as I argue in the marijuana piece, there are really two strong arguments for marijuana legalization. One is that pot is fun. And the other argument is that, like, people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies. And I think those are reasonable arguments. But I don't think that they are unrebuttable. And I think they should be rebuttable by the presentation of adequate harm caused by the free availability of these particular substances. Um, And I think this is why, you know, this is why we prohibited all sorts of substances throughout past centuries because we said, well, the, the, the acute harm done to specific people dramatically outweighs the sort of minor pleasure of the people who get high on the weekend from the same drug. Talking about, you know, whether we're okay with drug addicts dying in the streets or things like that. I feel like people who come from societies where drugs are illegal are actually much more okay with that, right? So in in a society like Singapore, they will say, yeah, of course, it's fine if, if somebody's addicted to, you know, drugs and they die in the street, like that is their sort of moral choice. And I guess, I guess part of that is because it, when it is illegal, then you really have to go sort of out of your way to do that. And it becomes, you become in some sense more morally culpable for making that decision. In a society where 
a drug is legal and you see lots of people doing it, it's much more likely you are going to do it and not think it's a bad thing because your society has not told you it's legal. People around you haven't told you it's bad. You go and do it. Whereas if it's already illegal to begin with, then I think it, it makes sense why people view that person with much more moral culpability and agency. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I, I try to be an aggressive consequentialist on such questions, right? There's this very live debate. What is, what is addiction? Um, and nobody is persuasive account of it. Addiction is brain disease. Well, like, yeah, that's a story that you can tell. Um, there's some persuasive evidence behind it. There's some arguments against it. So addiction is a learning disorder. Yeah, that's a story you can tell. Um, addiction is a choice. Addiction is a rational choice. Yeah. It's, so it doesn't look, you know, is a crazy real? Is it not real? Um, I think these are sort of interesting philosophical debates. Uh, they're very hard to resolve in a persuasive fashion to me. Um, well, I think that all sides, this is a confident all sides make good arguments. Um, but my view is that in general, it is much more useful to observe that there are certain substances that compel people to act against what most reasonable humans would observe are their rational self-interest. That's a substantial harm to those individuals and frequently comes with attendant harms to everyone else around them. Um, that that you know reducing kinds of drug use or is good for the people who are using drugs, but also for everybody else who is affected by the drug use. Sure, it is the case that if drugs are strongly prohibited, they become more of a choice and people are more responsible. But it's also the case that like you know if you try drugs once and then your entire life goes off course, is that purely your fault? No, probably not. And I'm perfectly comfortable saying that my condemnation of or my my theory of the of the East Asian model is often just that it leads to policy approaches that don't work. So like the East Asian model relies heavily on compelled drug treatment, except it's all like compelled absence only, hard labor, um, often like abusive drug treatment, which is not a great way to get people off of drugs just observably. It's both mean and also not a good way to get people off drugs observably. And so there, you know, I think that there's a certain amount of cultural baggage we have the obverse of that, you know, clouds people think about, you know, what do people who use drugs deserve? What does society deserve? rather than what is the way to manage the harm of these substances in society most effectively and sort of with the best interest of everyone involved at heart. Maybe I'm unique in this, but for somebody like me, there's a very strong desire to have a very clean solution, right? So, oh, it's all legal, we're all illegal. And then we sort of tally, okay, which makes more sense. But to your point, like, it's just not realistic to have, I mean, well, you, you could have a society where it's totally illegal but or totally legal but it just doesn't seem like either is necessarily the the approach that actually ends up having the best uh, outcomes this is a part of my case for marijuana prohibition um so so back when marijuana prohibition was sort of the law of the land and legalization was like a hypothetical it's like the 90s 80s um so like like you had medical pot which is you know the quote unquote medical i'm doing air quotes medical marijuana um, just stalking horse for legalization, but we can talk about that. There were lots of discussions of, okay, what is the optimal marijuana policy regime? And there's a guy, um, there's a guy named Mark Kleiman, who's sort of the dean of modern drug policy. He's a very thoughtful guy. He sort of applies, he's a student of Tom Schelling's and applies Schelling's work to drugs and criminal justice policy. Anyway, Kleiman sort of goes, well, you know, what we could do is, and he ends up advising a lot of legalization, you know, you could have, you could have marijuana state stores, or ideally what you'd have is a registry, and you could only buy it through the mail. And so you could absolutely minimize the risk associated with addiction while maximizing profits. Which are, and of course, this is not what has happened at all. Um, instead, we have these sort of like incompetent pseudo-legalization regimes. Uh, New York is my favorite example of this. In New York State 
there were 1,400, there were like five legal pot shops in New York City and 1,400 illegal ones. And the reason for this is that the state is taking forever to roll out its licensing regime. And also, if you want to get a license in New York State, you literally have to be a criminal. Like you have to have been, you have to be quote unquote harmed by the war on drugs, which means you committed crimes. So they're having trouble getting funding for these people's businesses for some reason. Um, so, so you know, what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to have this rollout that prioritizes social justice and equity. Uh, it's it's a huge political mess, and there's of course a thriving black market, but even in the most Free market regimes, uh, even the least regulated regimes, you still have a thriving black market. I allude into in the in the in the piece to a book by the agriculture economist Robin Goldstein, Daniel Sumner. Uh, they wrote a book called "Can Legal Weed Win," in which the argument is basically like the cost of marijuana in the legal market is just the cost in the illegal market plus the cost of regulation, which means that people will always substitute to the illegal market when it's cheaper because people are strongly motivated by price because like marijuana is pretty generic good. Point being, like, you know, people like Mark Kleiman were thinking of designing these optimal policy regimes that balance interests. And what actually ends up happening is this absurd mishmash of politics, which is optimizing for, like, A, satisfying the desire of democratic interest groups, B, trying to regulate away harms, but also deal with the, the cross-pressures and the pre-existing illegal market. It's a mess. It's a huge regulatory nightmare. I don't think it's working by any standard. And my view is, what exactly are we getting out of all of this? You're getting like a couple billion dollars in tax revenue, barely. You're getting some people who get to have, like get stoned on a Saturday night. You're getting a lot more marijuana addicts. Like none of that seems good to me. Why is, you know, building this huge regulatory non- nightmare worth all of that? Why not just keep it illegal? It's a very good point. And I guess, I mean, Thinking about people I know who smoke marijuana, you know, before and after, you know, it was legal, like the people who were smoking it before, you know, just kept smoking and the people who wouldn't have tried it, started trying it, things like that. Um, for some percentage of them, maybe that was good. They found something they liked. They don't have a problem. Maybe for some percentage, a smaller percentage is bad. I guess your point is like, if you're trying to design some very high level policy thing, it is just not going to work because of the incentives you described. It makes me think because like I, I could almost I don't know I don't know if this is possible, but to me the ideal policy, like in my perfect world, would be you have some kind of policy where people can go to a store and, and buy marijuana, but if they have addiction, which at some point gets screened along the way, like maybe they're frequent users or something, they get flagged. This is all starting to sound very social credity. But once they're in that kind of camp, then suddenly all the you know shops altogether stop selling to them and they can't get anything. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything like that has ever been proposed or something like that. But to, to me, the ideal system would be one that you, you know, the the 80% of people who don't have a problem are continue to be able to do what they want. But then the 20% who do like are just cut off completely. I mean, is there anything, has anyone ever proposed anything like that that makes sense? Yeah, I, no, I mean, th- th- this is more or less the goal of the mail order model, the climate mail order model is like you keep very close track of who's consuming what and you stop, you know, people get people can get a uh, people get a quarter and they get cut off afterwards. My response to this is a that is unlikely to be implemented in political reality that that what to turn, you know, there's sort of a Daniel Patrick Moynihan observation, right? Like, like, uh, uh, what, what, what the system can actually, you know, Ideal policy design is one thing, but the constraints of political reality are much more important for the regulatory system that comes about. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, expecting government to do very complicated things is 
never a very good idea because of that. So that's point one. And point two is like even in that system, that maybe works if, you know, the government has just discovered marijuana yesterday and they have a monopoly on supply or they're they're pricing it dirt cheap so they're driving no tax revenue from it. Otherwise, there's a flourishing legal market. Which, you know, excuse me, a flourishing illegal market or flourishing gray market, um, which, by the way, is allowed to operate with impunity because marijuana is legal. So you can grow it. Um, even if you can't grow it without government license, like, you know, nobody, nobody thinks we should, like, send the military in to shut down people growing stuff without a license. It's been shifted to an administrative concern. So it's still easier than it used to be. Um, so it is, it is hard in both both for political reasons, but also I think for by virtue of the dynamics of the pre-existing market, it is hard to sort of segment off the at-risk population such as they are because there's always going to be an illegal market on which they can rely and against which the government is always going to try to compete. Okay. Well, you've already mentioned a couple reasons people use to try and argue for its legalization and refuted some, but there's a couple that I want to come back to because I think they're interesting. So let's talk about medical marijuana to begin with. So this was sort of the claim that you could use marijuana and and also not just, you know, THC, but like CBD products and things like that. You could use those kinds of products to basically treat all kinds of pains, um, illness, not illnesses, but people's pain if they have multiple sclerosis, if they're going through chemotherapy, they're vomiting, that marijuana is like a good treatment for this. I guess the argument would be it's a safer treatment than like opioids or these other problematic drugs that big pharma is is pumping into hospitals and drugstores. If you actually look carefully at the science that's been done, does marijuana seem to show like a benefit compared to some of these other kinds of painkillers? Is a painkiller per se not really? I mean, different people report different stuff with the management of chronic pain. I don't really remember what the literature says, but my impression is that there's not strong evidence that marijuana is a more effective painkiller than certainly opioids, over-the-counter painkillers, et cetera. The, I mean, look, it is very plausible. There's relatively strong evidence that marijuana is an effective treatment for certain specific medical issues, as you alluded to, um, MS-related spasticity, vomiting and nausea in therapy patients and stage age patients uh, who are otherwise not eating. Um, it, it stimulates appetite. There's uh, cannabidiol, which is one of the active ingredients. The other one is indicated for childhood epilepsy. There are like a handful of things you can use it for. That's true. Should it be used for as many things as many states say it should be used for? No, there's no scientific basis for this. For the states that say adopting sharp for whatever they want, why? It's not indicated for those things. There's strong evidence for those things. Marijuana is an addictive substance with harm potential. The other thing to observe is that like we have a spectrum of substances which are, you know, the 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 schedule controlled substances for all of its limits and problems. The the basic principle is on one end, there's Schedule One substances which are both dangerous and addictive and also have no medical use. On the other end, there are uncontrolled, uh, un- unscheduled substances which may be indicated for a variety of medical uses and also, by the way, are not dangerous and addictive, like Tylenol. There are lots of substances that everyone agrees should not be recreationally legal that are not Schedule One. So, like cocaine is used in as a as a, as a local anesthetic in uh, in eye surgery and I think one other kind of surgery. Um, like it has a medical application. There's no diversion of medical cocaine. Like that's not a big problem. But simply observing that there are certain people who would benefit from 
THC consumption, not even necessarily smoking THC because smoking things is bad for you, but THC consumption does not mean that marijuana is something that should be widely prescribed outside of those populations. Never mind, it's something that should be recreationally available. Right. It's interesting too, because I think people in the mental health field have tended to avoid prescribing marijuana for mental health conditions, even though like tons of people will say they smoke marijuana for their anxiety. I mean, it's a very common thing people will say. I doubt that it's good for them in the sense of it probably makes your anxiety worse as it's treating it or something like that, right? But people in in psychiatry have, for the most part, you know, stayed away from prescribing this stuff. And I I think it's kind of interesting that in the, when suddenly it's the physical body and suddenly like those things don't matter anymore, right? Suddenly it's like, okay, well, this is 100% uh, a good idea. You know, I think, and and, and this returns to the point that medical marijuana is a stalking horse. And you said you want to talk about psychedelics, which is, you know, we're currently in the same process right now. The abstraction of medical marijuana is largely a political tool. It was largely a political tool. The goal was to introduce Americans to marijuana as a thing that was plausibly beneficial. It benefits veterans. Everybody loves veterans, right? Veterans like pot. Everyone loves veterans. So, you know, medical marijuana for PTSD, apparently. Um, I don't think it's indicated for that, but that's another thing there. That, that, that was the political function of medical marijuana. The effect was that there was a conceptual slippage that if marijuana is a medicine, it can't also be harmful and bad for you. And of course, the reality is lots of medicines are harmful and bad for you. Like, you know, I, there, there are, you know, several thousand people in the United States who prescribe desoxin for their really aggressive ADHD. So desoxin is just methamphetamine. Like th- these people, a doctor has quite plausibly judged that they need medical meth. Um, I know somebody who's on desoxin for a long time. He's just probably needed meth to function. But that doesn't mean that like the average person should be consuming meth on a regular basis. So, you know, it, it, it relies on the conceptual slippage of because something is medicine, it must be beneficial. When the reality is that all, you know, the 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 classic insight is the Greek for medicine, pharmacon, means both poison and cure. All substances are like this. If you take them for the right kind of the right dose, they have beneficial effects. That doesn't mean they're always beneficial. Well, it's it's funny too because I feel like one one use of, of marijuana for a somewhat I don't I don't know if it's medical but supposedly beneficial purpose that a lot of people seem to agree with even though I think I mean to me it seems not a good idea is is um, people will say oh if you work a fast food job or you work a job packing boxes or something like that like you're doing some boring repetitive work then you know it's it's I totally understand that this person would smoke up right basically the idea being their job is so boring and repetitious that it's it's understandable why they would choose to feel good and have, be having interesting thoughts and things while they're doing this boring stuff. I posted a, a graph on Twitter recently about sort of marijuana use rising among workers and things like that. And that was that was the reaction from a lot of people. Like if I had to work fast food or if I had to stack boxes, then of course I would be you know high all the time. And I, on the one hand, I can kind of recognize like why a person might choose to do that. But on the other hand, I think for that individual over the long term, that seems like a terrible way to slowly get yourself out of that situation. Maybe it's just the kind of culture around it that's been built up, but there seem to be things like that, that we just kind of sort of implicitly accept and go, yeah, okay, that's, you know, that's understandable. Yeah, right. But like, so let me, let me, you know, do the sort of the, the, the supply side or the, the, the producer side, the, the employer side version of that. Yes, it sure is true that if you want people to do dull, repetitive work, you want them to be docile and compliant wage laborers, you can dope them up. That's, that is a thing that you can do. But gosh, that's really dystopian when you think about it for more than 30 seconds. Like you are surrounded by 
uh, people doing menial, unfulfilling jobs, living menial, unfulfilling lives. And to address that, they just like float through their days completely dissociated from reality. Like that's, that's the plot of Brave New World. I don't think that's a good vision of the future. So, so you know, can I imagine thinking, yeah, I might as well get stoned. My life sucks. Totally. Do I think it's really great that our response at a political level to that arrangement is, well, their jobs and lives may be miserable, but at least they're high? No, I don't think that's ideal. Um, and this doesn't mean, you know, I'm not taking a stance on, on the merit of, you know, labor is good. Um, I'm not, you know... I don't think it's bad that these jobs exist. I'm in favor of that. My point is, I think almost nobody left or right in any of the context would look at this situation and go, yeah, it's cool that like the labor force is doped to the gills to deal with their crushing uh, depression, anxiety, and existential boredom. Yeah, it's it's not good. And yeah, it just, it worries me that people sort of seem to think that attitude is kind of like just accepting that, right? Versus being like, no, like that person should at least try and be sober enough to then get out of that or something like that. I mean, maybe there's people who who will never escape that kind of life or something, but I feel like society over time has built up many tools to try and kind of help people deal with those kinds of, you know, despairs. And I, I don't know, I just, I don't see long-term marijuana use being something that's going to uh, help that. I think there's a broader phenomenon here where we are increasingly, and by this I mean in the past 30 years, increasingly willing to address our problems as predominantly chemical or as amenable to chemical solutions. And I didn't necessarily mean these are existential problems, I mean our day-to-day problems. Think, for example, about the explosion in amphetamine prescriptions, um, Adderall prescriptions, which I have a piece that will come out in a while about that. Um, uh, on the one hand, I think it is quite plausible that uh, ADHD names a quote-unquote to the extent that things psychiatric are real names, a real constellation of, of problems. And on the other hand, it's very clearly the case that there are lots and lots of people who are taking amphetamine on a regular basis who do not qualify as ADHD, who are just consuming the drug for its benefits to what they view as inadequacies in performance that they can remedy through chemical means. There's a, there's an article, I forget in the journal, maybe a few weeks ago about, uh, the widespread use of psychedelics in Silicon Valley is like a tool for uh, expanding expanding one's mind. Um, and you know, there's there's one argument. There's sort of a there's an anthropological argument. This is like alienating us from ourselves. It's a very interesting argument to me, but um, it's an interesting argument to have. But I actually think it's it's there's there's this sort of a, a a more straightforward argument against this, which is like these these substances are also quite dangerous. They do real and substantial lasting harm to individuals when used improperly. And our sort of widespread, our increasing casualness about them is premised upon a downplaying of those risks and harms that we are, we are much more comfortable. We think, well, because we think that our problems are amenable to chemical solutions, we tend to downplay the risks inherent in addressing our problems through chemical solutions rather than any of the other tools available to us. Another problem there, especially with amphetamines, is it basically can create this landscape where if you're not doing amphetamines, you're just not going to be as productive. And so you kind of end up bringing a lot of people along for the ride who they take amphetamines because, oh, this is what academics do, right? Or this is what people in tech do. And, you know, taking Adderall every day. Many of those people probably would not have chosen to do that if they didn't feel like it was sort of a prerequisite for being in that field. 
here's another conceptual shift is the insistence that drugs are all sort of the same kind of thing. That, if, for example, you are on board, you know, if you think heroin should be legal, you also think that uh, cigarettes should be illegal. Um, it's like, no, different substances have different effects and how we regulate them is different. Um, before, so like, so like amphetamine was widely used throughout American society for long periods. Amphetamine is sort of first sold as Benzedrine in the 1930s. And there's like a 40, America is on a 40 year amphetamine vendor, basically. Like it's peak, we're consuming millions of pounds of amphetamine every single year in the, in the late 60s and the 70s. Um, there's one survey I found in the late 1960s that says, there are like, I think five campuses and four of them amphetamine is more commonly used than marijuana. Um, this is late 1960s. This is the university campuses? Yes. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on four of the five campuses, sorry, amphetamine were more popular than marijuana. In 1970, at least 10 million Americans used amphetamines, uh, 40% of whom sometimes used them, quote, not medically, and 25% who abused them. And this is like, like you know, they, they have a fairly terrible uh, experience of this. Um, Allen Ginsberg, the guy who wrote Howell, who is not, how do I put this? A stable individual, known not for his abstinence. In 1965, Alan Ginsberg, who had a history of using amphetamine, calls it, quote, antisocial, paranoid making. It's a drag, bad for your body, bad for your mind. And, like, calls on all the hippies to stop using amphetamine because it's so bad. I mean, there's a 20-year abeyance. And then, and I carry this history. Then we kind of bring it back. We're like, oh, hey, amphetamine, that's pretty cool. Let's, let's put all of our children on it. <laughs> that's where we currently are. And it's not great. The point is, like, people don't remember how bad this stuff was. Um, they don't remember the harms. They just go, well, it sounds like good. It feels pretty good. And that's how drug use cycles go. I think I think for people more on the right, you know, who are very pro-capitalist, they don't like the idea of the government interfering and selling or marketing things. They, at least for a long time, have viewed the drug companies mostly based on the good things they do. There's a lot of good things that they do. I'm, I'm not denying that at all. Um, but I, I also think you can look at, you know, certain examples of them trying to popularize things, uh, especially like especially their marketing campaigns around different things. And you can really say this really seems to be creating more of a problem than it's solving. Like social anxiety is a condition created by drug companies, basically. Drug companies went to Japan and they basically told them depression is a real thing. Here's a drug. Take it. It's not denying that social anxiety or depression are in some sense, you know, real things. I think I think there's a real uh sense in which um, many of these substances, even as, as you're saying, if they kind of are used for a while, reject them and go away, can be rehabilitated through creativity, through good marketing. Yeah, look, I think it's absolutely true. What I say abstractly is pharmaceutical firms are like any other profit-seeking entity. They're, they're trying to produce things that people want. Um, and that's great as far as people have good wants. And it's bad as far as people have bad wants. Um, and you know, you, to, you to think about it on that level. When you think about the return of amphetamine, why is it that uh, so, so, so amphetamine comes out for a couple of reasons. One is that in the early 1990s, the federal government says students with ADHD and ADD diagnoses qualify as disabled for purposes of federal student accommodations. So there's more of an incentive to identify it and to, on average, select you know to, to select the marginal person as ADD. And the second reason is that. Um, so, so Adderall, before it was Adderall, Adderall's reintroduced in 1986, Adderall used to be a drug called Obitrol, which was for weight loss. Um, and then went off the label and they were like, what can we do to like bring, to bring this drug from the 1960s to 1960s back? It's like, it's like a weirdo mix of like different salts of amphetamine. It's really probably not optimal. It just sort of caught on because it was there at the right time. It's probably not optimal for treating ADHD, but they were like, there's a bunch of new demand for a drug. Ritalin is fine, but you know what's better than methylphenidate? Ritalin is amphetamine. And now we have this drug in our backstock and we can we can sell it again. 
Um, so I think it is, it is absolutely the case that, and look, you know, this, the, this is true across the board. Um, this is arguably true about the SSRIs is, is what's happening is, is that the, there, there's a market incentive to identify a particular psychological phenomenon as responsive to drug intervention and then say, well, we have the solution to this. Do I think this is like, like a, a fatal flaw in capitalism? No, I think capitalism is pretty good. But I also think we have to aware of this particular dynamic. So, okay, so psychedelics, right? So psychedelics are now kind of going through this cycle. And we see... It's because of the Dr. Bronner's guy. Huh? Dr. Bronner's is this like really weird brand of soap and cleaning products um, that you can buy at your Trader Joe's. The, the guy who owns Dr. Bronner's, um, whose name I can't remember, is a major funder of all of these initiatives to get psychedelics legalized across the United States. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but I was going to say... People for a long time used it recreationally and and spiritually, or, or you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying medicinally. Although that's the language some these people like to use, but spiritually, you know. And recently, there's been efforts to bring it into mental health treatment. So people with PTSD or you know trauma. I'm doing quote quotation marks. Um, but ba- basically, basically, uh, the idea is you take this psychedelic, your ego kind of gets smaller or dissolves, which gives you, you know, in some sense, the ability to look at your life from a new perspective and maybe to see things about yourself you wouldn't didn't want to admit about yourself or deal with traumas you didn't want to deal with before and stuff like that. And I've looked at the sort of literature coming out of this, like, you know, over the past couple of years, and it seems like most of the microdosing studies have not really played out uh, as being better than a placebo or something like that. The macro dosing studies, like I think people have many positive experiences, but they're quite confounded by the fact that most of the people signing up want to be doing this and are probably believers. I mean, I think, I think it's a very interesting issue. Like there's all kinds of things, you know, people could get into, like, does it make sense to do it in a lab versus in the force, stuff like that. But setting sort of that aside, I mean, looking at it sort of from a, a drug policy progression point of view, what are you seeing and, and where do you think this is kind of going? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, this 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 returns to the point about with human marijuana. Um, uh, people argue, and I, I have no trouble believing that certain psychedelics are plausibly ought to be are plausibly ought to be indicated for treatment of specific psychological issues. Is ketamine better than SSRIs for depression? Yeah, it could be. Um, it seems like there's some decent evidence for that. Uh, but like, we don't have huge conferences about like SSRI treatments in which like superstars celebrate the legalization of SSRIs and talk about how they're going to bring out the bold new future. It's not really about that. And permitting, permitting the prescription of ketamine, uh, permits the off-label prescription of ketamine and its widespread availability. For example, if like lots of teledocs start handing out ketamine and advertising it on Instagram, and then lots of people get hooked on ketamine and have often disastrous psychological experiences because of it. That seems like an issue. Is there a way to square that circle? I think probably that has to do with sort of boring DEA, FDA, other regulatory agency oversight, and who gets to prescribe under what circumstances, when, where, and why, and balance of harm and benefit. Um, but I think the reality is that lots of people, much like marijuana, uh, the the number of cases in which psychedelics are plausibly appropriate for medical issues is far as the number of people who just want to use psychedelics because psychedelics are fun. And my view on this topic is like certainly some psychedelic experiences are fun. Also, some psychedelic experiences do profound psychological harm. 
to the people who undergo them. There are some estimates that suggest that persistent and ongoing flashbacks occur in as many as between 1% and 4% of LSD use sessions, which is an insanely high number. If I had a 1 in 25%, cha- 1 in 25 chance uh, of of experiencing persistent flashbacks in the wake of using LSD, I would not use LSD, which I don't. That's that's like crazy. Hallucinogens are not addictive in the same sense that many conventionally concerning drugs are. They aren't reinforcing. Um, you don't develop a tolerance for them in the same way, but they can do real and substantial psychological damage. And I think a lot of the, you know, they open your mind, blah, 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 sort of strikes me as hippie nonsense. That's not very scientific of me, but it does it does mesh with the behaviors that seem to come with it um and also just more generally uh perhaps on a superstitious level i think we should be very cautious about challenging our experience of reality it's often a very tenuous uh connection um people are much more impressionable than we like to think that we are and i think it is it can often be dangerous to uh disconnect ourselves entirely from our account of you know our theory of ourselves and our theory of the world around us there's so much there i mean first of all i think yeah, you got to differentiate between the specific ones. I, ketamine, I have a strong concern about. I mean, I remember like four years ago reading about uh, people um, in, in psychiatry or psychology journals, you know, people treating bipolar disorder with ketamine. And, and myself just thinking like, that's just a terrible idea. Like, even if even if it brings these people lasting relief in the short term, which maybe it will, but I'm sure a lot of people who are bipolar, who are already more likely to have, you know, substance abuse issues and things like that are going to be like, oh, of course, I want ketamine treatment and then go in and get it. And then perhaps over time that will, you know, spiral into something worse for them individually. With with psychedelics, like if you're taking mushrooms or something like that, I think they don't seem to be addictive. People don't seem to, after doing one, you know, immediately want to do another. And I think even microdosing, I don't think seems to be very addictive. So I'm less concerned about that one. But the thing that I the thing that I find weird about that, about sort of therapeutic, you know, psychedelics something like that is I don't understand at all why this is being why I, I understand the I understand why, but it doesn't it doesn't in reality make sense that this is being sold as some kind of therapeutic kind of thing, medical thing to me. Maybe psychedelics should be legal and maybe it's just the the harm is fairly low. Not a lot of people, you know, tended to do them anyway. And I mean, it's a bit different now because they're being advertised and things like that. But I feel like a lot of the actual attempts to turn this into some kind of new revolutionary treatment or antidepressants, especially for long term issues like long term mental health issues, maybe short term, there's something there. But for long term, I just really just think this is a not a good idea because, um, a, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence that it's, you know, better than these other kinds of treatments. Um, but B, it changes your worldview and your experience in a way that you can't change back. And some people will say, well, that's good. You're seeing the truth. But I think there's lots of people who would say, oh, no, like I've actually just undergone a, a huge worldview shift. And that was really bad. And I, I especially feel that way for people who, you know, maybe have a religious faith they believe in strongly or some kind of strong orientation to the world are very happy. I think you could you could quite easily do a psychedelic um, for some kind of benefit and just have everything pulled out from under you and, and actually be sort of worse off uh, for it. Yeah, let me, you know, channel my inner, inner Theodore Dalrymple and say that the bourgeois virtues are an important foundation of functional civil society. I think there's a real sense in which the phenomenon you're talking about poses a threat to those virtues, um, a sense that, you know, uh, the world is as it ought to be, uh, that I have a place in it and I need to engage with the world society because they are good and just. Um, they are not arbitrary. The world is 
in some sense is ordered. Um, and we can argue at sort of a college drummer philosophical level of whether or not that's true. It's all a big hoax. Um, but you want a society to be built on that. So even if you bracket the mental health concerns, I think those are real concerns. Um, even if you bracket long-term mental health concerns, I think we are not obviously better off as a society with more widespread psychedelic use, particularly more widespread casual psychedelic use, just sort of as a as as as, as a freely available thing. Like we're not better off if everybody has you know the the wool pulled not over their eyes, but off of their eyes. Even even if you think that's what psychedelics are doing, it's not obvious to me that we live in a better world if that is true. More than that, I would say, I think people who do a lot of psychedelics in general don't change their behavior that much. Like they will go through some huge revelatory insight, but, you know, reality kind of uh, intrudes and people go back to their normal behaviors for most people. But it's, if you're giving this to a population who are, you know, deeply sad and, and mentally ill and uh, have other kinds, you know, potentially other kinds of mental you know, health issues as well, possible mania, possible psychosis, or, you know, even if that hasn't manifested yet, if they're young, this could end up, you know, being an issue down the line. I mean, I just think it's a huge risk and I don't think it's taken seriously enough. I, I also saw some work recently from EcoFreed that basically showed that a lot of these psychedelic trials are not reporting their side effects accurately. And they're definitely not writing them up well. So, you know, they'll have a trial where maybe 10 percent of people will have some really bad effect but then they don't really kind of gloss over that if they include it at all and the trials all you know so far are still mostly focused on people who want to do this actively and we have not even seen what happens when you have people who are just you know normal joe schmo off the streets and is suddenly sent down this rabbit hole i mean i don't i assume the people who want to do it are probably already quite open to having their mind expanded and all that kind of thing and yeah it just seems to me like it could be an example, again, of a treatment that at one high level is, is people are okay, but the sort of more normal you go, just the worse it gets. I said a while back that I don't, it's not that I don't like to talk about addiction, it's that I think the debate about what is addiction is often uh, sort of a sort of a dead end or sideshow. And the reason I think this is that it, it focalizes the conversation about some people are this way and some people are that way. Um, and then what we should actually realize is that substances are this way. Um, or that, or that specific substances, specific effects, at, probabilistically, the question of why some people have that exposure and the other one is sort of is, is ancillary to the fact of those effects happening sometimes. Um, I think this is true for this is a reason for our, our and by our I mean humans wariness of substances is a historical matter, um, and this is true of psychedelics, but it's also true of heroin, it's also true of amphetamine, it's also true of marijuana, it's also true of alcohol, um, it's also true of caffeine. Um, there's a reason that. Uh, many Christian denominations don't consume caffeine uh, because it alters your perception and engagement with the world. All substances carry with them beneficial capacities, but they also, in general, carry with them harmful capacities. Um, and, and I think that we are today insufficiently wary of those downsides. Insufficiently, we are, we are too blasé about those and too willing to believe that you know upside is all that's really there um and that you know the the downside was invented by the man to stop us from like doing drugs um and it wasn't right like this is, you know there's there's reasons that we get off we got off of these things in the 70s and 80s or in the 80s and 90s there's reason we got off of these things because they weren't great so you know i think i think that that if if if, if you take that additional sort of skepticism you start to go oh Maybe it would not be great if like large portions of the population had free available, you know, free access to a hallucinogenic substance whenever they wanted to. That seems that seems potentially problematic. Well, you know, talk about the man. I mean, it makes me think as well. I wonder maybe the medical community has just changed as well, right? I mean, back in the eighties, nineties, like your 
your average um, doctor, right, was a Republican, all about the bourgeois values. I, uh, there's a novel actually I read recently where in the 60s, talking to a psychiatrist, that talks about how he's a Republican and all they're, they're all Republicans and things like that. I know today, you know, that the medical community overall has become much more progressive, much more liberal. And I mean, we mainly we mainly focus on how that sort of affects the politics of, of what they do, but also makes me wonder whether that affects like their actual genuine ideas about, you know, what is a good society? What is good medical practice? They seem to be moving increasingly towards this kind of maximal consent kind of driven medicine where you cannot have any kind of paternalism. And paternalism is essentially seen as the worst virtue you could uh, ascribe to. Right, which is, you know, alarming from the perspective of people who have the capacity to prescribe controlled substances. If my patient comes to me and says, I would like opioids, I have to be able to make a judgment as to whether or not they want them for legitimate or illegitimate purposes. And I'm uninterested in judging if purposes are or are not legitimate, then that's a potential problem. Um, I become a pill mill, uh, willfully or un- unawares. I become able to take advantage. And, and, you know, I think, I think this ties into an anthropological account where people do not or presume not to want these substances for antisocial reasons or for self-harmful reasons that we sort of take as given that people are irrational, people are rational and pursuing their own best interests. And really it's just sort of, you know, structural forces that are causing the bad things to happen to them. And it's for his view today. And it's a view that drugs problematize, right? You know, so much of the discourse around drug use is focused on here are the harms of drug regula- regulation, drug prohibition, the harms of, the drug regime and my response is okay well but we should talk about the harm to drugs because like drugs in themselves are harmful um they are they are harmful to individuals when consumed irresponsibly but i think that it is certainly the case that we are less and less willing to say that uh and that will have substantial downstream impacts certainly certainly plausibly at the individual level, but certainly at the political level um as you know as right this is you know the the, the push for psychedelic legalization is based on this argument that psychedelics are natural medicine to which my response is what on earth do either of those terms mean natural what what on earth does that mean it, okay it wasn't made in a lab so what it's medicine okay so it should be prescribed under the oversight of a physician and only when absolutely necessary that's not what you mean you're just like sort of invoking touchy-feely granola aesthetics to achieve your political lens um people find that so persuasive now it's alarming to your point now and, and also earlier i mean you can tell these things are not medically driven when the people at the conferences are dancing and doing drugs at the conference and, uh, you know, just having a, a great, basically having a rave at their, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the MAPS conference. Uh, if you look it up, the uh, big psychedelic conference, they're, they're basically having a giant party at the conference, which is like part of it appeals to me. I'm like, oh, it's like a cool party where they're also doing science. But then I think it's maybe these things should not be mixed because maybe when you're doing science, you're supposed to be actually quite critical and negative. If you talk to people who work in substance use and substance abuse policy, many of whom are physicians, um, some of them will sort of mouth the pieties of contemporary liberal discourse. They'll say, oh yes, the war on drugs is very bad. Um, We think that we need a public health approach to drug use, but they often mean a very different thing from what, the, the sort of activists mean when they say the same set of words. I saw the um, the chief drug coordinator of Portugal speak yesterday. For your listeners aware, in Portugal, drugs are formally decriminalized, which is to say um, you cannot go to prison for drug possession. You can be cited and then referred to a, a commission which asks you what your drug use and can refer you to treatment, blah, blah. Um, 
life is important. Uh, it is it is a system in which you know some of the tools of criminalization are off the table, but there certainly is still a great deal of formal and informal pressure that regulates drug use. Um, and then you get people to say the barrel of a gun is not the best tool for managing substance use disorder, which are by many accounts, which is by many accounts a disease. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the best response to substance use disorder is just to like let people suffer from their disease. Um, and I think that this is a you know a real division between uh, people who still regard substances as problematic, even though they don't necessarily favor the top on drugs approach, versus people who say the problem isn't really the drugs. Probably really is how we think about and treat drugs. And drugs are natural, and people should just you know do whatever drugs they want while we liberate and it'll be great. Yeah, I I mean, there's all this stuff around harm reduction, which is its own conversation, right? But I I, I recently saw um, a video about this harm reduction organization in, uh, I think it was Vancouver, maybe Winnipeg here. And uh, the video just showed these these two, this guy and a girl, you know, both being there sort of late 30s, former drug addicts, pretty visibly, you know, former drug addicts. And they're they're going around giving, you know, drug addicts crack pipes and supplies and all this stuff like that. And then you they get interviewed and they say, yeah, it took me 20 years before I finally kind of realized I had it within me just to quit. And that's when I finally quit. And they, they say this while they're going around to people, giving them substances to keep you know, them doing drugs. Now, there are basically their model of how people quit drugs is you have to keep doing the drugs and safely until eventually you decide personally to quit. I can understand why somebody would think that, especially if maybe they themselves just sort of one day, you know, quit or something like that. But to me, it seems like a terrible thing to basically cast upon a person and basically say, like, you know, we have no obligation to you other than to keep you drugged until one day you independently of your own free will decide to to quit. I mean, to me, it seems like the world, the worldview conflict here is massive and is in some sense unbridgeable. I mean, if someone sort of has that view, how do you even communicate with them? How do you explain like why they're wrong? Right. I so I was I was in Portland a few months ago reporting a piece for City Journal that'll hopefully come out soon um, about Oregon decriminalize Oregon's own decriminalization statute, um, which passed in twenty twenty and specs. And I spent you know one day I went out with an organization that's a beneficiary of funding under the decriminalization measure. Um, they do peer support and harm reduction services. Nice people, very you know I think they have their hearts are in the right place. Um, but we went out and they distributed harm reduction kits to homeless drug users. So they handed them socks and bandages and needles and naloxone. They also gave them a bunch of free clothes, which we bought with public money. Um, and we're standing right afterwards, and we're with a with a woman from um, one of the main pro decriminalization advocacy organizations, sort of the main one. Uh, and she asks one of the guys who works in this organization, who is himself in recovery, um, history of positive substance use. You know, when stuff like this happens, what do you say to people who say when stuff like this happens? You know, when you do stuff like this, you're enabling, um, you're enabling drug use. Like, you know, do you think that's reasonable? And he said, well. When I was living on the streets and doing methamphetamine, did this enable me? Yeah, I think it did. I think it enabled me. But that's just my perspective. And it's like the Bailey is people have to want to change or it's hard to get people to change. It's much easier to get them to change if they want to change. The the Mott is nobody will ever change until they voluntarily want to do it. So you just have to try to keep them alive until some magical breakthrough happens. And the reality is – you really can shape people's behavior, right? Like people who use drugs are not completely irrational. They 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 have bounded rationality, just like all of us. They bounded rationality. 
um, their behavior is being shaped by the perverse incentives of their addiction. Um, but you know, uh, the, the, the classic observation is drug users are not fully enslaved or not enslaved to their drug use. And the reason you know this is that drug users who are holding drugs don't like start compulsively using them when they're in front of cops. Like they have the self-control weight. They know they can balance their interests. And that means that you can affect people's you can affect people's calculus. You can shape their behaviors to do things that are better for them. And at this point, you know, when you have this argument, what's revealed is that often people sort of a principled opposition to doing anything that somebody compelling somebody to do something that they don't want to do. And my response is heroin addiction is kind of forcing you to do things that you don't want to do. Fentanyl addiction is forcing you to do things that you don't want to do. Methamphetamine addiction is forcing you to do things that you don't want to do. So it's not like a neutral choice to just sit by while people suffer. It's not a good thing to do. There is, there is no way to get out of this by saying, well, we need to respect their free choice. Are they able to make choices? Yes, absolutely. Are they substantively burdened by an addictive substance? Yes. And there is, I think, real justification for, in that particular circumstance, helping them help themselves, even if they don't necessarily understand that's what they need at that particular juncture. For someone who believes really that it's all up to each individual to decide everything for themselves, they have a hard time understanding that. What shifted me a bit is thinking about people who are who require involuntary capacitation, right? So pe- people who like Jordan Neely, you know, that kind of person recently who probably should have been in a mental hospital. And if he wasn't, he'd probably still be alive today. But all kinds of people, right? So people who are schizophrenic, people who are really suicidal to the point where they have a plan and they're going to kill themselves. Like there's many people who would benefit from the government uh, or society more generally coming in and changing their behavior. And Carolyn Gorman, who also is a a colleague of yours, when I talked to her about this, she actually said, yeah, even John Stuart Mill, if you go and read his original writings, like On Freedom or something like that, he even agrees. He says, yeah, of course, people should be free, but not everybody, you know, is able to make the best decisions for themselves. And there is a certain threshold that we should care about where, you know, we intervene. And yeah, I think when you see somebody who's a drug addict living in the streets and with sort of no hope, I mean, I think at that point, when asked to consider whether you you know the kind of naive liberal ideology has sort of you know met its dead end because that person is no longer that person basically lacks agency i mean they 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 in a sense in a sense can't even make the right decision even if it was right in front of them and the other thing is you said there's a there's a there's a great moment in michael schellenberger's book san francisco um which is you know it's a, a decent book um but i i, I like to he's talking to an aclu lawyer and he says look imagine that there's uh a man who's standing on a public sidewalk in front of somebody's house screaming, he's, you know, naked, berating him. Uh, yeah, I don't know, in, in, in engaged in a series of antisocial but not formally illegal behaviors. Do you think the government should be able to displace him? And Khan says, no, he's on a public sidewalk. Like, that's his, that's his right. Sorry that you have to live around him. And he goes, okay, well, so he's clearly severely mentally ill. Should the government be able to compel him to treat him? She goes, no. Because, you know, that, that, that would be a deprivation of his liberty. And it's like, so his freedom consists in his freedom to live, like, to, to, like, be completely out of control of himself, living this sort of horrible, uncivilized life. But I guess my view is that in those circumstances, I'm not sure what the instrumental value of freedom is. It's like, yeah, I guess there's a definition of liberty that includes that, but it's not a liberty that I'm particularly interested in preserving. Like, I think there are lots of benefits to liberty. I think liberty is great. Um, it's usually good to let people choose stuff. It's usually good to get the government out of people's way. Um, freedom's awesome, but like you know, freedom is good because it serves the end of human goods. 
And there are clearly circumstances in which leaving people alone to make their own choices is disastrous. Not merely sort of like ambiguously bad, but obviously disastrous. And it's just much harder to make the case. You, you, you have to commit yourself to a fairly severely principled libertarianism to say, yeah, liberty matters more there too than letting, you know, liberty, liberty is the thing that requires us to let somebody die in a gutter. And my response is, okay, well, I like liberty in lots of contexts, but not that one. So I don't need liberty to be that to be included in my definition in order for me to feel like I'm living existent, coherent, compelling philosophy. Yeah. And I guess the, the Rothbardian kind of person would say, well, that's only because there are public spaces at all. Everything should be totally private. And, you know, then whoever that person, you know, whoever owns that sidewalk can can do what they see fit. We're doing that society. <laughs> 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 let's solve all problems by you know by by abolishing the government it's not unlike let's solve all problems by abolishing capitalism i mean even if i grant the premise good luck with that one well charles it's been awesome talking to you today what do you have uh, sort of going on um over the next while gosh uh, what am i doing professionally i have a bunch of different projects that are on the pipeline um i'm doing a lot of work i'm hoping to do more work on drug policy i'm your listeners can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Uh, my work is at the Manhattan Institute, which is Manhattan.institute. Yes, really. Um, and also at City Journal, which is our uh, uh, quarterly publication in print online. That's city-journal.org. I also have a Substack because I'm part of that, um, which is at – it's called The Causal Fallacy, which is a really dorky reference to James Q. Wilson. You can find that at the causal fallacy, C-A-U-S-A-L, the causal fallacy.com. I go on radio, somebody pronounces the casual fallacy. I'm like, that's not whatever. I'm not going to explain to you what this is a reference to because nobody's read this essay besides me. So it's fine. Anyway, those are great places to find me. I do lots of stuff on drugs. I don't do drugs. But I, do, I read about drugs. All right, uh, Charles. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Mental Disorder Podcast. Thanks for having me on.